If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. We're in verse 7 through 12. <clears throat> Speaking of parents, this is a good one. Title of this uh, uh, sermon this morning is called The Comfort of Asking Dad. Our text is Matthew 7, <clears throat> 7 through 12. This is the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ saying to his disciples this, starting in verse seven. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your presence. We're so thankful for your church that new society of people that was born out of your initiative and action, born out of your desire and out of your love, your self-sacrificial love. Thank you that we can gather here this morning on this beautiful, wonderful day in the middle of a Sunday, gather around what you have spoken. And Thank you that you have spoken in your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone. You have not left us to fend for ourselves. You've not left us to our own devices, but you have spoken. Your word speaks loudly to us today, and I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would also be present here to bless us as we listen to your word. I pray that you would open our ears and unstop our eyes and remove the fog and remove anything that comes in the way of us hearing and asking and seeking and knocking at the door of our Lord. Thank you that at that door you will be found. Thank you that you are a good God, and I pray that if anything happens today, we would see your goodness, and it would cause our hearts to soften towards you. We would say, with the saints throughout the centuries, that is a God worth following. I will leave all behind to follow after you. Show us your goodness today. Show us your love. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, for those of you that are maybe visiting or are new today, we are actually in the middle of a series. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're in the middle of 7, so we've been going through a lot of one of the largest bodies of Jesus' sayings and teachings, just uh, little by little, just been going through it gone through quite a bit, and so it'd be maybe a little necessary for me to give a little recap about where we've been. You know, if you've ever opened up the Bible, which I'm I'm sure uh, some of you have, opened up to the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very popular passage in the Bible, read some of it, it can, uh, can at the, you know, at at the first thought of it, appear to be just a bunch of difficult sayings of Jesus that maybe don't look like, at surface glance, that they have anything to do with each other. 
But as you read the whole thing, as you just allow the Holy Spirit to teach you, and as you read it from uh, back to front, and you digest it, you see that there is a singular theme, of course, that is Jesus and Jesus' kingdom being established on the earth, its inauguration, its start, and one day its finish. Uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God, and what we've seen in the chapters has been that God's kingdom is wonderful. Everything that God desires that has to do with his kingdom, his will being done, his kingdom coming, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven as we are taught to pray by the Lord, everything about his kingdom is good. And so it's out of that that our heart cries, yes, Lord, may your kingdom come. May everything that you desire, everything that you want happen in the world and in the city of Santa Barbara and in my home and in my family and in my job and in everything that I can see and touch. Your kingdom is wonderful. Your kingdom is good. But as we've gone through Sermon on the Mount, perhaps you've, you've also, I hope, have seen, wow, the kingdom is good. Perhaps you've also seen, wow, the kingdom is hard. Kingdom is very good, but it's also very difficult. It's, you know, when we started off speaking about the kingdom of God, it might have just felt very intangible. You can chuck out words like that, the kingdom of God and the heavens, and it's, it can be this intangible, esoteric thing. Like, what is it? I don't know, but it's probably good. But what the Sermon on the Mount seeks to do, and one thing that it's been doing, is it's been taking that intangible thing and putting flesh around it, flesh and bone. All of a sudden, the kingdom of God is relational. All of a sudden, the kingdom of God is marriages. It's relationships, it's contempt, it's uh, those things in our heart that need to be dealt with, it's, uh, it's integrity, it's issues of character, it's what we do uh, in our secret time, it's what we do in our public time, it, it's everything. And so the Sermon on the Mount has really functioned that way. It's taken that thing that risks being so invisible and t- uh, intangible and it's been putting flesh and blood and relationship and uh, uh, skin on it. Perhaps after that, seeing how it affects different parts of our lives, if the kingdom of God were to bear on it, you would say, yeah, the kingdom of God is incredible, but it's, it's impossible. That's why the prophet Daniel, when we went through the book of Daniel uh, last year, and I think it was in chapter two, it was Daniel himself who said, yeah, the kingdom of God is nothing that can be accomplished by human hands. It's, it's from above. It's something different than what we're used to and what we can pull off uh, on our own. And if you just take a little rehash of where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see just how difficult and wonderful it can be. Starting in verse, uh, chapter five, verse 20, <clears throat> the kingdom of God requires a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. It requires a heart that is free from all contempt and all anger, a heart that is free from lust and wandering eyes. It requires a life that is marked by faithfulness in marriage, integrity in speech. It's a life that has been liberated to love enemies rather than to retaliate, a life that is liberated to complete and utter holiness, a life liberated to giving without recognition, praying without the need for recognition, fasting without the need for recognition. It speaks of a prayer life that seeks God's name over everything else, God's kingdom and God's will as the most important thing, chapter 6, 
verse nine through 10. Only our basic needs being met, our sins being forgiven, and of course praying for the ability to go through anything with the presence of God alongside us. It seeks, the kingdom of God does, a social life that is filled with love and forgiveness. It speaks of an inner life that is absolutely free from materialism, from idolatry, from anxiety, from worry, from judgmentalism, and from condemnation. And you look at that list and you see not just an intangible picture of the kingdom of God, you see it real. You see it with flesh and bone. You see it in your own life. Perhaps you see it in your own mistakes. And so, yeah, I can understand in the words of a friend uh, this past week who said, yeah, going through the Sermon on the Mount, it's been really good, but it's hard. Perhaps you're saying that as well. This picture that Jesus is painting for us. The whole Bible is really good, but it's really hard. The Christian walk is really good, but it's really hard. My one question for you this morning is, are you discouraged by that? Do you see what things ought to be like? Do you see these examples of Jesus' life and Jesus' kingdom, and do you come away from that feeling discouraged about how you live your own life? So incredible and beautiful and wonderful and transcendent is what we see in Jesus' words that it has caused people throughout the centuries to back up from it and say, gosh, that is such an incredible picture that I don't actually think Jesus means for us to take it seriously. It must just be there to make us desperate. Martin Luther, of all the greats in the, in the centuries past, was one of them. He said, man, this is, this is incredible, but I don't think anybody can actually do that. It must just be there to kind of jab us and make us feel desperate for help. And yes, it does have that effect, doesn't it? And yet Jesus, nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount, says such a thing. I'm sure we can find that in other parts of the Bible, but in the Sermon on the Mount, do you find it strange or at least intriguing that nowhere does Jesus say, I am saying this stuff to ruffle your feathers only and to feel desperate. Rather, he seems to expect us to take everything that he says seriously and to live in such a way that it would reflect the beauty of what we see. He says outlandish things, actually. Chapter five, verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Chapter five, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect or complete or whole as your heavenly father is perfect or complete and whole. Chapter seven, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Everywhere we look, it seems like Jesus has high aspirations for the people of God. Nowhere does it seem like he's dangling a carrot in front of his people saying, You're almost there, you're almost there. Just kidding. It actually seems like he expects us to look this way. That's why the kingdom of God, because we would, say, we would see this and feel maybe 
horribly conflicted, saying, everything I see in here is nearly impossible, if not impossible. That is the beauty of the kingdom of God. It doesn't come from within, it comes from above. And the kingdom of God is one of grace and not merit. It is given to the poor in spirit, to those who mourn, to those who hunger, to those who have nothing, to those who don't have an iota of the kingdom within them. It comes to them from above. And that which you are unable to build with human hands comes upon you by the hand of God. And it comes to anybody who wants it badly enough. That, I say, because of what's to come in the, in the verses that we're about to read. The verses that we're about to read should come as a note of comfort from this God who has the kingdom, who has everything right, everything righteous, everything just, everything holy, everything that's supposed to be. <clears throat> he turns and he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find it. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is one of those verses that we can easily just pull out and sometimes do to pray for just about anything, right? Lord, I ask you now for a Bugatti Veyron. It's not there. Lord, I ask again. We, tie, we take verses like these, strip them. They can be very easy to strip as just arbitrary verses on prayer. Say, well, God is just giving me this to ask for just about anything that I want. But if we read it within the context of the kingdom, everything that's come before it, it has to do with the kingdom. It has to do with following Christ. How do you get into the kingdom? Is it by impressing the Lord? Is it by working harder? Is it by doing more? Is it by driving yourself crazy, going busy? Is it by church attendance? Is it by giving? Is it by looking a certain way? Is it by praying harder? Is it by listening to a bunch of sermons? Is it by doing a bunch of things? Jesus says, ask for it. Everything that needs to be done has been done by the cross and through the resurrection. Just ask for it. And seek after it. It's the pursuit of the thing. He lays it out for you on a silver platter and he says, I just want you to pursue. I just want you to seek first the kingdom of God and all this other stuff that you need, I'll give that to you. But I just want you to pursue what's important to me. I want you to ask for it and I want you to seek after it and I want you to get up to my doorstep and I want you to beat the door out of excitement. And what do we receive for the pursuit? So one author says, based on the direction and pattern and buildup of this context, it's easy to see the thrust of the passage. The Father in heaven who gives good things is speaking not just about anything, but everything. Whether material or spiritual, any good thing that refers to something necessary to fulfill Jesus' commands. When he speaks about good things, he's 
uh, speaking about what is required to live the way of Jesus, what is required to follow after Christ as a disciple. Everything that you need to follow after him, Jesus says, ask me for it and I'll give it to you. I know it's hard. I know I'm, I'm asking the impossible, but I'm the God of the impossible. What is impossible with man is possible in Christ. Just ask me for it and I'll do it whether it's food on the table or spiritual gifts in the soul or a change of heart or a renewing of the mind or just enough to get through a day which is threatening to crush you, ask me for it and I'll do it. How many of you feel crushed, discouraged in your walk with the Lord? Good things in this passage refers to anything necessary to follow Jesus. But notice it's not just the pursuit. It's not just an initial pursuit. Ask me once, and you'll have everything you need for the rest of your life. Seek once, knock once, maybe twice. I'll open the door and you can just, you'll just have everything. In the English language, we have, you know, we have tenses to refer to different parts of time, right? Well, most of us know this past tense referring to something that's happened in the past. Present tense to refer to something that's happened in the present, future, and so on and so forth. We have three. Language that Matthew is using in Matthew, the Greek language actually has quite a few more. There's such a precision in the language that enables Jesus and some of the gospel writers to speak more precisely about some of these things. In other words, when Matthew would use the present tense, he wasn't just speaking about something that happened in the present, but something that happened in the present that had ongoing repercussions. It wasn't just something that happened once, but something that happened in the present and was continuing. And these are what's being used every time there's a verb in this passage. You could rephrase it to say something like this, Jesus saying, ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. In other words, it's not just the pursuit, it's the persistent pursuit of the things of God that matters. We are to continually seek God's sustaining power, his endless resources, his great strength, and his wonderful presence. It is to be our lifestyle, a persistent pursuit of upward and heavenly things in this lower earthly life. That should mark us as believers, persistently pursuing the face of God. That's why salvation can't be merely relegated to a decision. Back when I was young in 1982 and I made the decision, and I haven't done anything with that decision since then, but you know, I made the decision. That's why spirituality can't just be relegated to a single moment in the past. It can't just be relegated or simplified to a, a one decision. This is a persistent pursuit. Jesus is speaking about a calculated intention to follow him for the rest of your life going into eternity. He's speaking about someone who's already seen the cost of living and who has decided, in light of that, to take a wholehearted plunge. That is the type of seeking that finds something worth seeking after. 
This is what God said through the prophet Jeremiah when he said, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. It almost seems like God, who is able to do anything, leaves the pursuit up to us. We have a God who loves to be pursued. The question then in Jesus' sermon leaves us, that it leaves us with is why don't we sometimes pursue? Why does a fire go out? Why do we stop? I think the answer depends on the person, and there's a lot of different persons represented in this building. For some of you, it could be very simple. It could be, it's because you don't wanna pursue. Done, easy. At the heart of it, it could be for some of us, just cold-hearted rebellion. No matter what we say with our lips or do with our hands, our hearts have said, I, I do not want the things of God that is a rebellion, hidden. A rebellion against God, saying it's my way, or the highway. It's my way, certainly not your way. And it's, a, it's what the Bible identifies simply as rebellion against God. Now it could be hidden under a thin veneer of hypocrisy. That's why we never think of it immediately as a rebellion because it's hidden under a lot of show and a lot of deception and hypocrisy, but while we can fool everybody around us, maybe we can even fool ourselves. God, who is the judge of the living and the dead, will be able to see through that veneer, and he will ask each and every one of you in this building one day, what did you do with my good news? I brought you the kingdom. I gave you the ability to worship me. I gave you the ability to know me. I gave you, offered you my good lordship over all of those awful idols and bad masters, including yourself. What did you do with that? And you will see through the lies. All I have to you to say is deal, deal with his gracious offer right now. Throw down your rebellion, put down your arms, lay down your weapons, and bow before a king who will rule over your heart better than any other. For some of us, it's not, it's not rebellion. Maybe the reason you don't pursue God is because you've been burned. You've tried this, you've gone to church, did the whole community thing, you've gotten burned. Maybe it wasn't burned by God, maybe it was burned by God's people. Maybe it was something that happened in the church. Maybe it was being burned by a family member. Maybe it was burned by a Christian. Maybe you were hurt or offended by somebody who represents God, and out of that, you're saying to yourself, and I think most of us can understand this, like, man, if I, if I can't trust a person who represents God that I can see, how can I trust a God who I cannot see? Why should I trust God when I've been burned by people so often? And it's at this point that Jesus goes straight to the heart of one of our deepest natural expectations. The core of our deepest need and what should be the source of that need, our dads. He takes that thing that every human being intuitively knows should be there to trust in 
and he uses that as an example to prove a point to you and me. He says, which of you, if his son asked him for a bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is Jesus in just the beautiful and wonderful way he does, taking something that might be a little intangible to us and bringing it down into something we understand. The kingdom of God is like a dad. Why can you trust God? Let me talk about dads. Some of you know uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, if only because I talk about her on occasion. But she's like at that point in her life where she can, she's getting a lot more articulate. She's growing in her precision to ask questions. No longer is it, I want that, but it's, it's, I want a bowl of ice cream with strawberries on top, you know? No longer is it like just arbitrary, ambiguous requests, but it's precise, accurate, and demanding. <laughs> and here's the problem with my daughter. She's about the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I go into situations preparing myself to say no. I really do, I promise. Brianna does too. We team up together. We pray together, saying, Lord, help us to say no to this creature. (laughs) We write scripts for ourselves. We say, this is what she's gonna say, and this is what we're gonna say in rebuttal. (laughs) And Bri, you gotta be strong. Yeah, Chris, you gotta be strong too. And you got my back, and I got your back, and that's how it's gonna go down, right? Right, right, yeah, let's go. Charge the gates. But gosh, there is nothing that will stop that bulldozer of a beauty coming at you when she runs up your lap and just grabs you by the face. There was this, uh, this one occasion, it's actually, I think, a dozen occasions like this, all had to do with ice cream. But she usually <clears throat> goes to mom first and asks her for something, right? And mom is actually the very, she's very strong. I think she's had a lot of practice, but she, you know, she might say no. Abby will immediately hop off mom's lap and come to me. She's so mean. She's like picking on me now. And at one point, I think this is a week ago, but this is her new tactic. She will walk, like I'll be sitting in a chair, I might be reading something. She'll walk, like she'll scale just my whole body, come up, up into the chair until she's sitting on my chest. She'll get in my face, push book or whatever it is that I'm doing out of my way, grab my cheeks with her, her fingernails, pull me close until she's about two inches in front of my face and ask me for whatever she wants. She'll like steer my face towards her until she has my attention, uh, my attention, and she'll say, Daddy, can I have ice cream? Can I have ice cream, please? Please? Daddy? <laughs> and if that doesn't work, she'll smother on the kisses and the hugs and the cuddles, all the things that she, by the way, withholds at other times. <laughs> she lays them on thick when she wants something, and it is... I'll just be honest, at that point, I'll give her, I'll give her a car <laughs> with ice cream in the front seat. I don't think that's strange for any dad in the house. When your kid 
especially your daughter, asks you for something, it is your joy to give it to them. You know, that's obviously <clears throat> on the heels of me understanding that I'm far from being a perfect dad. Sometimes I think I'm giving her the right thing and I end up giving her the wrong thing. Sometimes she wants the right thing and I fail to give her what she needs. On a daily basis, I make mistakes even though I try really hard not to and to do the best job that I can as a dad. I think a lot of us can say the same thing. We're messed up, but we, we truly and deeply love our kids. And when they ask for something like that, it's really hard to turn them down. Wouldn't we give them anything? Jesus right here was using this method that rabbis in his day often used. It was called kalavahamer. It literally means light and heavy. Something light versus something heavy. One author, Lois Teverberg, puts it this way. She says, he, Jesus does this whenever he says how much more or contrasts a small thing with a much greater thing in a parable. You don't get the point until you grasp the utter irony of the comparison. The irony here is that if your messed up dads can still do good things, how much more can your father, who never makes mistakes, do so much more for you? Some of us in the building have dads that <clears throat> done some pretty bad things, or have made big mistakes, maybe failed us at important parts of our lives, and think for at least quite a few of us, we could still say the deepest part of their heart, they still, still loved us, or at least they tried. For a, a lot of us, maybe not all of us, no, no guy wakes up some morning and says, I, I, I want to be a deadbeat dad today to my kids. No, we make mistakes. Some of them are horrible mistakes. But most of us, if we were to be asked by the Lord, would say, yeah, I, I do love my kids and I wish I, could, wish I could give them what they need and I've tried. Jesus using that comparison saying, hey, even the best dads make mistakes, but that is nothing compared to your heavenly father. Of course, this brings up <clears throat> the other few. And some of you had really, 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 really bad dads. For some of you, this analogy starts to break down because you would look at it and you'd say, actually, to continue the metaphor, my dad did give me a stone. To continue the, the metaphor, I, when I asked for bread, he did give me a stone. He did give me a serpent. Some of you, maybe you're completely abandoned by your fathers. Maybe you're completely abandoned, hurt, betrayed, abused. And when you read this verse, it makes no sense to you because it feels like the analogy breaks down at the point of your experience. If someone who you should have trusted, the one person you should have trusted above anybody else, failed you and was found entirely trustworthy, why would you ever trust anyone again, especially someone that you can't see or feel or touch or smell? The pain is real. And without belittling or invalidating that pain, I'd rather show you that God understands and cares about it. 
And the very fact that we say in those moments, this is not right, that even in the worst situations between us and parents, even in the most catastrophic and horrific relationships between siblings and parents, we intuitively know in that case this is not how it's supposed to be. Those exceptions to good parents simply prove the rule that that is not how it's supposed to be. And out of that mess shines a light in the story of God that even to those who are completely abandoned by their fathers, they will never be abandoned by their God. God, sure, you can praise him if you want. God is not like your dad. Your dad was put here on this earth to give us an imperfect glimpse into the heart of God. Our dads are supposed to be like God. I am supposed to be like God to Abby, even though I tremble in that fear, knowing I'm going to make mistakes. We're supposed to be like him. He is not supposed to be like us, and he's not. Thank you, Jesus. How can you trust a God you can't see? I'll tell you. Because the God you couldn't see was made visible when he stepped into your loneliness and suffering through the person of Jesus Christ. He takes your suffering and abandonment issues and your identity crisis and your hurt and your pain so seriously that he decided to take the mess upon himself. He put on flesh, he dwelt in your neighborhood, he saw it for himself, he experienced it for himself, and he made a way for you to get out of it. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15 tells us, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? This is obviously a rhetorical question, right? The prophet is taking the other parent, the mother, and saying, is there anyone more loyal, more caring, and more loving than a mom? No. Would a mom ever desert their child? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, ah, never! And yet, even if they did, is the line, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. To all the moms in the room, have you ever felt, or do you ever feel, like everybody on the planet needs you? I don't know, I just heard a couple things. I know a couple moms. You ever feel like you're a mom to everybody else? Do you, ever, do you ever walk into a quiet space on those occasions and be like, man, I'm a mom, I'm a hero, I'm a, I'm a help, I'm a warrior, princess, you know, I'm a bulldozer, I'm a forklift, I'm a, I'm a kitchen, a living room, a job, a career, and a check for everybody that I know. Who's gonna take care of me? I love Isaiah 49, 15 because it, it actually honors moms. It says, is there anybody better than a mom? Is there anybody stronger, more fit for love and care than a mom? Is there anyone that can deal with as much stuff as a mom? Absolutely not. And guess who is even greater in their love than a mom? Your God. While everyone on the planet 
on this day applauds you for being moms. There is one person out there who does not look at you as a mom. It's your heavenly father, and he looks at you as a daughter. So while everyone else is begging you for meeting their needs, God doesn't need anything from you. He just wants you to be his daughter. I hope that you go out from this building resting in that beautiful truth that God loves you. You love everybody else, God loves you. And even when you fail, and even when you fail to meet that impossible criteria of our culture and even of our families, be perfect moms, even when you fail, God won't fail you. That's the end of this text. It's a recap. Basically, following Jesus is beyond our power, but his love is for us and he has made a way. It took me about five seconds to teach this whole passage right there. Should have just done that. <clears throat> following Jesus is beyond our power, but his love is for us and he has made us a way to do it. I just want to land on one more thing. I'm just, I'm going to skip that last verse just from lack of time, but I, I do want to treat one thing. The question some of you are asking right now is why would I give so much up to follow somebody else? I see what you're saying. The kingdom of God is hard, it's crazy, it's impossible by human hands, but God will allow us to do the impossible. Some of you are asking, why would I want to do the impossible? I like my life how it is. I just came to come hear a feel-good message at church so that I could go get a burrito right after, and you ruined the first half. I'm gonna go get a burrito. Question some of you are asking is, why can't I just not adopt the Christian name and live how I want until I end up in heaven? Brothers and sisters, because you will not end up there. Followers of Jesus Christ end up in God's heaven. Fakers will end up in God's judgment. And I'm telling you this so that you will not end up in God's judgment, so that you will end up in his embrace and that gaping open door that waits for you with the Messiah at its helm saying, ask me, seek me, knock for me, and I will be found by you. Do not be deceived. How you spend this life matters. If you think you can go through the rest of your life living for yourself only to wake up in eternity and something will shift, you are tricking yourself. What you care about in this life matters. What you chase after in this life matters. What your heart is steered towards in this life matters. How you spend this life matters for the next one. And God is saying to many of you in this house tonight, I want your heart now. I don't want it later, I want it now. And the offer stands before you in this life. Transformation is available to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You who say the Christian life is impossible when I try it, it has been made possible to you by transformation in the power of the Holy Spirit. That offer is available to you right now. You don't have to go through life being defeated. You don't have to go through life just trying to be a better Christian. You can go through life with transformation, not only at the high points, but also in those that are so low. 
Not only does the offer of transformation wait for you, but the promise to finish that offer waits for you as well. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Who is it? The author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ, the king of his kingdom. The promise stands before you in this life. Just ask me. Just seek. Just knock at the door. I don't need you to impress me. I don't need you to be uh, 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 crazy and impressive in your prayers. I don't need you to read so many different things. I don't need your church attendance. I don't need your generosity. I don't need any of that stuff. I need your heart. I want your heart. Seek, knock, ask, and I'll open everything up for you. All who are willing to persistently pursue him above all things will find a welcome open door. <clears throat> yes, there's gonna be some bumps in life. And yeah, the standard is crazy impossible. Jesus expects us to be holy as he is holy. But guess what else? The gospel tells us that he has not left us to our own devices. Same Jesus who expects us to be holy also intends to make us just like himself. Whoever wants to go through that roller coaster ride will find themselves holy at the end of the tunnel. The question that we should be asking is, do we wanna be like Jesus? Or do we just wanna play church again? I'm sick of playing church, and I think a lot of you are too. Do you wanna be like Jesus? Do you read these stories and find yourself strangely entranced by them and say, that is a better life, and I want it? I have served myself all of these years, and I have found my own desires incredibly wanting. I want something that transcends my life experience. I want the God of heaven and earth Living for Christ is good, but it's also hard. Why? The hard news is also the good news. It's hard because it's nothing less than your personal transformation. Jesus doesn't just forgive sinners. He endeavors to change every ounce of them to match the glory of his Father. We can find comfort in God's willingness to give us everything we need for that, everything we need to live for him if we would but engage in the pursuit. In fact, Jesus shows us how God is even more trustworthy than our own moms and dads. God bless them and worthy of our pursuit and obedience. That's why the apostle Peter, at the end of his old age, would say to a bunch of his own disciples, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's a story I want to be a a part of. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up this morning as we begin to sing of his praise and glory. And as we do, as you're thinking about this, A God who simultaneously loves us so much but is calling us to greater things, calling us to follow him. In other words, it's it's not just believing a few right doctrines. It's not just adding a few right behaviors to your list of right behaviors. It's giving up your life. 
saying, I have found in Jesus something worth living for, and there's nothing greater than that. And it is so good to me that I am, I am willing, as the parable goes, to sell all of the treasure that I found in this field to purchase it. As we sing, I want you to think about that, a God who simultaneously loves you but is calling you to greater things, and allow yourself to be confronted. If you need to find that confrontation as a believer in the bread and in the cup, you can hoist that up and remind yourself of the great cost that was paid to purchase a people for his namesake. Paul said when you lift it up and you meditate on it and you take of it, you partake in the bread and of the cup, you're reminding yourself of his death until the day he comes. It means you're getting your eyes off yourself and onto a wonderful savior. can get on the carpets today. The stage has been cleared up, so there's some space. For those of you who like space, it's available to you. If you just want to lay on your face, allow yourself to be confronted today, not just by a loving Savior, but by a ruling King and Lord. Posture yourself. Ask yourself and ask and seek and knock and repeat. Ask and seek and knock. Repeat. Ask and seek and knock and repeat. Stop looking back. Whatever, whatever you stumbled over in years past, just forget about it. Stop looking back. Those things happen to us, they're true. Things that we've been hurt by, the things that we've done to hurt others and even hurt ourselves, those are true experiences and they, they have shaped and formed us, but they do not have to define us. as you ask and seek and knock and the door of heaven opens upon those who are poor in spirit your reply be like King David in Psalm 27 was in a similar place like some of you surrounded on all sides having difficulties with following God and yet his eyes tuned up above his mouth would come these words. The Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rises up against me. I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will hide me under the shelter of his wings. He will lift me high upon a rock, and my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in that place sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody with my mouth. So hear me, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. 
have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, my, your face, Lord, do I seek. So hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother can forsake me, but the Lord will take me up. Heavenly Father, we just ask for your eternal presence to be with us today as we sing, reminding us that the one who calls also enables. May your glory be seen in this place and may every resource of heaven be dumped upon our laps. But most importantly, may we see in you something worth pursuing and may we do it for the rest of our lives. Brothers and sisters, as we sing, may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.